also has four chapters. It's short. It will uh, probably take us, uh, you know, maybe six, seven weeks to go through. But Malachi is that last book of the Old Testament. He represents the last prophet sent by God before John the Baptist, before we open the pages of the New Testament. And so after Malachi, sometime shortly after that, we will then begin a study of the uh, book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. So this study of Malachi will lead us right into that. And um, so go ahead and, and, and read ahead and read the book if you haven't to, to remember it. But there's a lot of amazing themes in Malachi. He talks about worship. He talks about giving. He talks about our response to God. And uh, it's, uh, it's a very interesting, curious book. It's, a, it's a, a great study in God's covenant of love for His people. But unfortunately, it has a somber tone. Because, as the name of our series indicates, the people of Israel at that time, when God sent Malachi to bring His message to them, they had become indifferent. They'd become indifferent to God's love. And that's probably the most dangerous place for us to be, to become indifferent. You know, it's been said that the opposite of love is not really hate, it's indifference or apathy. And if you think about that, there's a lot of truth to that. You know, we often equate this idea of love, then of course the opposite seems to be hate. God even kind of describes that in our passage this morning, just the first five verses we're going to look at of chapter 1, but really the opposite of love is really indifference. Because when you're indifferent or apathetic, it means what? You just don't care. You just don't care. And you know, I think um, as a parent, one of the, one of the most um, powerful tools that we have in trying to train up our children, I found early on, you know, was that it was easy, of course, when, when my kids would frustrate me or would would do something to bring anger. And it's, it would be easy, isn't it, to just say, I'm so angry with you. But you know what's better is when you say, I'm just so disappointed in you. Isn't that kind of, doesn't that hit harder? It, it's almost like we'd rather somebody that's upset with us to say they're angry, right? We can almost deal with that better than if somebody, somebody that you care about says to you, I'm so disappointed it almost kind of shows that sense of like, I don't know what to do. You know, you've let me down. My heart is broken. It's got that idea. And you know, um, I guess it worked because my kids would always say, don't say that to me. They'd rather be, be upset or angry or frustrated, right? But then you just say, I'm just so disappointed. But in a way, that's the message of Malachi. Because you'll see in the first five verses, which I'll read in just a minute, God is saying to His people, I'm so disappointed. Because why? They have grown indifferent. And they're not really uh, being outwardly disobedient. It's more that they're just going through the motions. Do you ever feel like that in your walk with God? That you kind of just maybe lose your perspective or lose sight or lose hope of you know, kind of the excitement and joy of being a Christian and then it leads to being just indifferent. Oh, it's kind of that whatever attitude and mentality. You know, there is a, um, a very famous poem by uh, the, uh, the poet um, uh, Browning. And her, her um, 
her famous poem, her most famous poem, it's a sonnet, and it says, How do I love thee? You know that one? What words come after that? How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. There's probably some, some younger people here that are say, What? What is that? No, no, that. But we kind of know that. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. It's been used so many times. But it's that idea, you know, and uh, she was actually a Christian and she wrote this. Th- I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's worth reading. Um, it's Sonnet 43 by Emily Barrett Browning. And, and uh, it was her most famous called How Do I Love Thee? And it's, it's a love poem to her husband who she was devoted to. But in a way, because of her faith, it is sort of this love letter, a re- um, an account of her relationship with God and God with her. And she says, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. And then she describes how much she loves her husband. The depth and the, the breadth and the width, right? And, the, and the, the deep riches of her love. And she goes on to describe it. And, and so, you know, it's a popular saying, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. And you know what? That's what came to mind when I'm reading this. Because you'll see, as we, um, as we read just the first five verses of Malachi 1, it is basically what God is saying to His people. Because God is saying, you know, I love you. And the people say, yeah, how? And He says, how? How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. And He recounts for them a particular thing that He did for them that shows His amazing love. So let's read it together. It will be up on the screen for you as well. But this is Malachi 1, just the first five verses. One to five. This is kind of our introduction. So he doesn't get into all the specifics, but through our study, you will see beginning next week, he gets into things like um, improper worship, worship that is not heartfelt. It is a heartless worship. He talks to the priests, the religious leaders, to the people, you're not offering me from your heart. You're going through the motions. He talks about giving. Uh, you're giving, but you're not doing it with a heart of gratitude. And, and it's a real um, call. It's a wake-up call to return to God when we have become indifferent. And we do so by simply remembering His great love for us. You know, now a lot of us, we can kind of gloss over that. and We say, God loves us. Yes, we know. But do we truly understand and grasp the depth of just that simple statement that the God of the universe loves us? We know what it is to love and to be loved, but to recognize that God has chosen us, has sought us with His relentless grace, and loves us. So Malachi chapter 1 says this, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And this is his response. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, But Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage so jackals to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, then the Lord of the hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Verse 5, he says, your own eyes shall see this. And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. 
Now let me give you an idea of what's happening here. So Malachi, again, the last prophet that God sends uh, that we see in the Old Testament, before there is a period of silence. It's about 400 years of silence where God does not send a prophet. There is no word in a sense uh, from God until we open the pages of the New Testament and the Gospels and we see John the Baptist, who is truly that last prophet, calling from one in the wilderness, calling those out to repent and prepare the way of the Lord. Because what had happened was this. We know that at this time in history where Malachi is writing, it's about in the the 400s B.C. Therefore, 400 years later is the beginning of what we see in the New Testament, right? And uh, John the Baptist and Jesus' birth. So this is somewhere in the mid-400s, that B.C. that he lived. And the exiles, the people of Israel who had been taken captive and exiled, are now back. They're allowed by the leader of that country to come back. There was only maybe 50,000 of all that had come back in waves. If you read the books of uh, Nehemiah and even um, uh, Haggai and Zechariah, they had come back and prophesied to this group that had come back to their land, to their promised land. And under their direction, the other prophets, um, they had rebuilt the temple for worship. They had rebuilt the wall. Remember that with Nehemiah? And they did all that. And this is about the time that Malachi was. So he was preaching the Word of God that God gave him to those people that had come back. It was about a hundred years later. So the temple was built already. The walls were around. They, they built their houses so they had some semblance of their society back. But here's the scene. They had been going through the motions. They built the temple, yes, and they went back to worship, but they were promised by the prophets that the Messiah would come. That that day of promise would arrive. And here it is just about a hundred years later. And they've kind of lost interest. They say, where is this Messiah? God opens the words of this book saying, I have loved you. And you know what the response of the people was to God? How? How have you, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? And then God, in His graciousness, He could have judged them right there, couldn't He? In his graciousness, he says, how? How do I love thee? Let me count the ways, is what he says. And he recounts one of the ways that he does. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But we need to understand the context of what's going on because Malachi is speaking to these people. It's only been about a 100 years. And they've been going through the motions of they're in the temple, they're offering sacrifices. You're going to see as we go through our study and the priests are doing their thing and the people are doing their thing. But you know what? They've lost their heart. It's kind of like what we read in Revelations 2 about the church in Ephesus. You know that in the beginning of Revelation, right? The revelation of Jesus to John and he accounts for the seven churches and the church in Ephesus. They were, they were doing great and Jesus commends them. You know why? Because they had done good works. And they were good and they were faithful. But you know what? Their heart wasn't in it. He says you have left your first love. Not only lost your first, you have left your first love. So Jesus says that to the church in Ephesus, but in effect, that's what God is saying to His people Israel during this time in their history. He's saying, I brought you back out of exile. I heard your prayers. I allowed you to rebuild the temple and, and you're going to come and worship, but you're just doing it out of, of rote like motion. You're just going through the motion. Do you ever feel like that? 
That's not what God is looking for. That's not the kind of worship and response. These first five verses are really setting the stage. Saying, how do we, listen, how do we respond to God's love? In a word, it's worship. It's worship through song. It's worship through praise. It's worship through surrendering our very life to Him. It's worship by trusting Him. By being obedient and doing it with a heart of love. Recognizing that God created a covenant of love for His people. This whole book is truly about God's love covenant for His people Israel. But of course, we can take that to heart ourselves and recognize, are we now the, like the church in Ephesus? Have we left our first love? Does that fire still burn? And God says, I have loved you, but you say, how? How have you loved me? And here's what they do. They have forgotten their heritage. They have forgotten their history. They have forgotten their place in God's eyes. Don't we do that also? Is it not easy to let the world around us just drown out the fact? Don't we allow um, the world to influence our identity and who we are in Him? And God is calling them back saying, return to Me. You have become indifferent. You have lost your heart of love for Me. He says, remember who you are. That I have called you and chosen you. You see, it's so easy for us to become indifferent to God's love if we forget not only what He's done for us, and from our point of view, what He did for us through Christ on the cross, but remembering who we are then in His sight. Right? That is why Paul, if you go back to read Ephesians, which we had studied through a while back, right? that church at Ephesus, that in Revelation, where, where Jesus is saying you've left your first love, You go back and read Ephesians. What is Paul doing? He's commending them, but then he has this lengthy prayer at the beginning of Ephesians and says, look, you have been richly blessed with all the spiritual blessings. Remember, this is who you are in Christ. You are the church. You are His body, His called out and chosen ones. But that is you and me. Our identity is now in Christ. We were saying it earlier when we were singing it. Our position before God has now changed completely. That our sin is now put on the Christ and His righteousness put on us. So before God, He doesn't see the sin, the shame, the guilt. What He sees is the blood of Christ. Right? So in His sight, we can now be called as children. That we are holy and righteous. We don't feel like it. We don't deserve it. And you're absolutely right. We don't. Because it's only by the blood of Christ. So in this context, God is saying you have lost your first love. So here's what He does. He reminds them of their heritage. He says, this is who you are. And this morning, perhaps, God is tugging through His Spirit at your heart to say, remember who you are to Me. You are My beloved. You are My child. You are the one that I died for. How do we even grasp that? He says, this is how much I've loved you. So, God points out, He says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Now, they would have known full well where He was going with this. What He's saying is, okay, Esau and Jacob were brothers, right? You had Abraham. You had, um, he had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. God chose Abraham. God chose Isaac for the line, the heritage to continue, not Ishmael. He does the same thing. Esau was the firstborn. 
Esau was the one that had the right to the inheritance. But God chose Jacob. He chose Jacob. God chose Jacob. And what is Jacob's name changed to? I said it last week. Israel. Right? The father of his people. Going through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God is saying, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. In a sense, he's saying, not the emotional kind of hate we understand, but he's saying, I chose Jacob for my blessing, but Esau I have not. And Esau did not respond to me. Did not understand that. I do not have that relationship with him. He goes on to say in verse 4, Edom, it's another name for Esau. It's kind of the land and the area. Edom means red or red skin, kind of in a sense. And if you remember that um, Esau was named that, he had sort of that name because of the, the red pottage, the porridge that he sold his birthright for. Remember that whole thing? So anyway, there's a connection there. So he's saying if Edom, or he's, he means Esau or that land that was named uh, for Esau and his descendants, if they say, this being Esau's people, we're shattered, but we're going to rebuild. God says, well, you can try, but my covenant is not with Esau and his people. So I will tear that down. They will not take over. They will not replace you, O Jacob. See, that's what he's saying. No one can replace the children that I love. God says that to us as well. He says, don't let anything replace your true identity in me. I have loved you. Your identity is in me, the one who loves you and gave himself up for you. He says that's what will happen with the people of Esau and his descendants because I chose Jacob. And that is why, that is how he describes. When he says, how do I love thee? Right? Almost like saying, let me count the ways. Here's the first way. And he says, don't you remember who you are? I chose Jacob. I chose Jacob, your forefather. I chose him. That means I choose you as a people. Saying that to the people of Israel. And in verse 5, he gives a beautiful perspective. He, God says, your own eyes shall see this. And then you will say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. He's saying, you watch and wait what I will do. Isn't that awesome? So in our time of doubt, in our times of, of struggle when perhaps we become overwhelmed, in the song we were singing, maybe we become too burdened. What happens? We need to come back to God and remember His love for us, His covenant love that He has chosen us. And He says, you watch and wait while I will do. You will see this. You might doubt it. You might forget it. But I'm not going to let you go. I will pursue you. The way He pursued Jonah, the way He pursues us, I will pursue you. I'm the one that loves you. I initiated this covenant. It's from me. And I'm the one that loves you. And he says, you're going to see this and then you will remember how great I am. Not only for you and your people, but beyond the borders. Because you remember the people of Israel were supposed to be a blessing to all the nations. Right? By their witness of what? Their testimony for God's love. Jeremiah 2 says this, Does a young woman forget her jewelry, a bride her wedding ornaments? But yet my people have forgotten me. Days without number. He's saying, you know what? We can remember to look good. We can remember the outside. That's easy. We always do that. Didn't you get up and 
You put clothes on today, right? I see everybody did. We thank you for that. And, and you came here, I mean, you go through, you do it, right? And you adorn yourself in a way and you want to look good. But he's saying, what about on the inside? See this other quote and he's saying, oh yeah, you, you won't forget your jewelry or to look good or to take care of yourself, but, but yet my people have forgotten me. He says, days without number. God is saying, I can't even count. He can, but he's like saying, I've lost count. How many days have my people forgotten me? And then in Deuteronomy 32, he says, you deserted the rock, meaning me. You deserted me who fathered you. He's saying, I gave birth to you. Again, your identity is in me. I chose Abraham to be the father of the people. I chose Isaac over Ishmael. I chose Jacob over Esau. He says, you deserted me even though I fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. How do we accept that this morning? In those times when we struggle, when we maybe go through the motions, perhaps we begin to offer worship that is not heartfelt. Maybe we sing the words, but we don't truly mean what we're saying. We come to church just sort of out of, you know, out of just doing it because it's what we've always done. Maybe that's one of the worst reasons to do anything is because uh, we've always done it that way. Losing that perspective. And so some words of application for us in these first five verses and Malachi is setting up the story. I do want to point out one thing which really is uh, something we don't want to miss. In the very first verse it says this is the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. It's like these are the words that God gave to Malachi, right, to give to the people of Israel. It's that word oracle, which means it's, it's a wise saying. An oracle can be the person or it's the actual saying, but in some versions, the, um, it's interpreted burden. Maybe the, the King James has that. It's actually a better translation, and it, it, it uh, gives a better indication. It really should say the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. How about that for the beginning of a story or a message, right? Here's the burden. You know why? Because Malachi, just picture it like a heavy knapsack. He's carrying it around as a burden. And God has said, here's the word to my people. And Malachi is probably like, what? You want me to bring this message to your people? And we're going to see even how this whole story ends. But he is coming. He's not, of course, holding anything back. And God is saying, you have lost and left your first love. And he's saying to Malachi, I know it's a burden, but here you go. So Malachi says, this is the burden that God put on my heart to share with you. And you know what it is? It's all about love. You have lost and left your first love. So we have to remember that God has a covenant of love with us. We even need to take time to contemplate that. I mean, the most well-known verse in the Bible, right? For God so loved the world. And we can say it. And say it so many times that sometimes we just kind of gloss over it. But just think about the ramifications of that simple statement. God loved the world. That He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him will never die or perish, but have everlasting life. What a statement. There's a reason it's the most well-known verse, right? For God so loved the world. Everything that is that encompasses that word, love. Think about its depths, its immense riches. And the fact that in His love, He chose us. Doesn't it also tell us 
in his word that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't have to clean up our act or do anything good. While we were yet sinners, while we were still disobedient, God did this for us. God is saying this in Malachi. He says you're being disobedient in that you're going through the motions. That's not obedience. Your heart is not into it. Where is that love that you had for me? That zeal, that fervor, like like John, Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus, hey, you were doing great works and you were so zealous. Yeah, but then you just lost your love for me. And he says, I'm, God is saying, I'm all about love, right? So there is a real danger in becoming indifferent to God. When we become indifferent, we become apathetic. We come before God with an unacceptable worship. We become less generous in giving all that we have. We become indifferent. We hold on to life more like this than like this. So how do we fight indifference? By remembering that we are to have awe in who God is and what He has done for us. I think sometimes we can get so focused on doing the right thing and believing the right thing, two things that are extremely important, but we forget first and foremost that God is a God of love. You know, it's been said this way that God does want our hands for service. He does want our heads to know the truth. But truly, He first wants our hearts. And that is where it begins. And the people in Malachi's time have left their first love. They have grown cold in their worship and love for God, and they have grown indifferent. That leads to a loss of hope and a loss of the proper perspective. Because again, they were waiting for this promised Messiah. He had not shown up. It actually will be about another 400 years before He does. But they lost their hope and perspective because they were so self-focused. When we look down, we miss what's up. Scripture says to set our eyes where? On things above... Because that's where Christ is. But we all get that way, don't we? We get so self-focused. You know, I remember when um, I began struggles with depression and the first thing the counselor said, and will always say, you know, the, you'll always hear counselors say this, one of the best things you do, it, that you can do if you're struggling with any degree of depression or anxiety is what you do is you go and serve. You think of somebody else. You go and take the focus off yourself and put it onto somebody else. How about you even start by praying for other people? Because don't we, when we're struggling and we're so self-focused, we're just praying, God, help me, help me. And of course, that's okay. But how about we then even focus our prayers on others? And that's what happened to people in Malachi's time. And that can very easily happen to us that we become so self-focused and so focused on our situation and our circumstances, on that job that we lost or can't get, on that relationship that is broken and broken and seems like can never be repaired. We get so focused on that, it's so easy to forget. Hey, God loves you. It almost sounds so trite to say it, doesn't it? Yeah, but... I know your life is so terrible right now, but God loves you, right? But there's so much wrapped up in that because that's what God is saying. 
the people, he said, you know, I've loved you. And the people say, how? How have you loved us? In that time, they built their houses and they had the temple and the wall and and they had crops, but the crops weren't doing so well. And then their worship suffered because they were just so worried in their circumstances and the Messiah hadn't come and they had just lost the proper perspective. I want to end um, with sharing this story. Tennessee Williams is one of uh, the great American playwrights. He wrote um, Streetcar Named Desire. Um, He wrote The Glass Menagerie. Um, Going through school, you probably read some of his plays. He also wrote short stories. And there was a short story um, that he wrote uh, that was called um, Sounds Like Tolstoy. And I'm going to read this story to you. And he recounts this story as one describing what happens when we lose perspective and we leave our first love and become so self-focused that we cannot recognize the great love that God has for us. So Tennessee Williams tells the story of a young man whose name is Jacob. And Jacob is a shy man whose father owned a bookstore. And the father wanted his son to go to college. But Jacob desired nothing but to marry his sweetheart, Lila. She was his childhood sweetheart. They were the, the, the perfect case of how opposites attract. He was shy and quiet, and he loved books. But she was outgoing and effervescent and loved to sing and perform. So Jacob reluctantly went to college to obey and respect his father. But after only a few months... He got word that his father fell ill and died. So Jacob returned home. He buried his father. And then he did get to marry his first love, Lila. Then the couple moved into the apartment above the bookstore and Jacob took over its management. It all seemed great for Jacob. The life of books fit him perfectly. But it cramped her style. See, she wanted more adventure. She wanted a life in music as a singer and fame and traveling and seeing the world. And one day she found it, so she thought, when she met a talent agent who praised her beautiful singing voice and encouraged her to go on tour with him of Europe with his theater company. And of course, upon hearing what she intended to do, Jacob was devastated. So on the day that she was to leave, She tried to hand him her key to the store. You had better keep it, Jacob told her, because you will want it back someday. I know you love me, and your love is not so much less than mine that you can't, then you can get away from it. So you will come back sometime, and I will be here waiting. So she kissed him and she left. But to escape the pain that Jacob felt, he withdrew deep into his bookstore. And he took to reading. He spoke little. He did little. He could most times be found at a large desk in the back of the bookshop, immersed in his books, while he waited for his true love to return. Nearly 15 years later, after they parted at Christmas time, she did one day return. She came into the bookstore, but when Jacob rose from the reading desk that he had been his place of escape for all that time, he did not recognize the love of his life. He thought she was just an ordinary customer. He says, do you want a book? That didn't didn't sit well with Lila. 
the fact that he didn't recognize her. It even startled her. But she, she gained composure of herself and she replied, well, I'm looking for a book, but I've forgotten the name of it. She then told him the story of the book she was looking for. She said it was a story of childhood sweethearts. The newly married couple who lived in an apartment above a bookstore. A story of a young, ambitious wife who left to seek a career. Who enjoyed great success but could never really relinquish the key her husband had given her when they parted. She told him the story and she thought it would bring him back in his memory to who he was and who she was. But alas, her face showed no recognition. Gradually she realized that he had lost touch with his heart's desire, his true love. He no longer knew the purpose of his waiting, his grieving, and his sorrow. For now, all he remembered was the waiting, the grieving, and the sorrow itself. You remember it, she says. You must remember it. It's the story of Lila and Jacob. But after a long, bewildered pause, Jacob said, there is something familiar about that story. I think I've read it somewhere. It comes to me that maybe it's a story from Tolstoy. Dropping the key, she sadly left the shop. Jacob returned to his desk in the back of the bookstore to his reading, unaware that the love he had waited for had come and gone. Sometimes in life, we can let things distract us so much that we lose sight of the love that we so long for. Let this not be our story, but let us remember the God who loves us. We want to have a time of worship as we... um, as we bring our time together to a close, but I'd like to do this. As you hear the song playing, we're going to have a time to worship, but I'd also like to invite you and actually encourage you to come forward. There'll be people up here that I've asked to to come and join you in prayer. If you want to stay right where you are or stand in the back, pray with somebody. Maybe just share a word or two about what God has put on your heart. Because you see, what what these five verses in Malachi have been teaching me is that no matter how much I read God's Word, how much studying I do, how much focus I put into what it is that I want to say or do, the most important thing I can do is remember God's love for me. We all get to the point in our lives where we become burdened. We get weighed down by our sin, by circumstances. And when that happens, it's like a cloud comes over us. We can't see quite clearly. Maybe we're not making decisions so wisely because we have lost that perspective. We have lost sight of God's great love for us. He reminds the people in our text today. He reminds the church in Ephesus. He reminds us. Does he not say, Jesus, in some of his most poignant and beautiful words ever, he says, come to me, all you who are weary, burdened, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you. 
for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. We can do that in many ways, but instead of just singing a song and getting up and leaving, I'm going to invite you. Join in the worship as we usually do, but come forward if you feel called to do that. Pray with somebody. If there's somebody next to you, you want to pray for them, just pray, even as you hear the worship. Sing and pray, but just come before your God, whether it's with a heavy heart or a heart of thanksgiving and joy this morning. Go and pray for somebody else. Be a blessing to them. And then just after a time, I will pray and pray us out. But then I'm going to ask at that time that if you need to leave or desire to go, that you would leave quietly and have fellowship outside in the lobby so that this can remain a place of worship and of prayer, contemplation, confession even. And so, you can remain seated. Our team will lead us in song and we can worship and pray. And as you feel led, you can come forward and ask for prayer. Go into the back and pray quietly. Even stay where you are. And then in a couple of minutes, I will close us in prayer. And if you need to leave, you can leave quietly and we'll remain in a time of worship and prayer.